Hello everyone, it is your host Grayson Decker. This is the Not So Grateful Dead podcast and this is episode number three. I am so excited that you're here today. It's lovely to see you again. Today we're going to be covering kind of a heavier case and I did want to kind of give a trigger warning of sorts that this case does involve rape, sexual assaults, and just domestic violence in general. And if that is too heavy of a case for you, please just take care of yourself and don't worry about listening to this episode. I know that it can be very triggering to hear things like this. This case just is very heavy in sexual things that just go on that are quite dark. So I just wanted to give everybody a heads up. And if this case is too hard for you, I'll see you next week. Thank you for joining anyways, but we're just going to jump right into it. Today, we're going to be covering the case of Elizabeth or better better known as Lizzie Marriott. Lizzie Marriott was born on July 10th, 1993 to Melissa and Robert Marriott. She was known as a very loving individual, and this wasn't just to humans. She was also just a very loving individual to animals of all kinds, specifically kind of marine life animals. She was vivacious and she loved her friends and family dearly. She was just a good person all around. She lived most of her life in Westboro, Massachusetts, and she actually graduated high school there. And once she graduated, she decided to stay there for that first year in college before transferring to the University of New Hampshire in the fall of 2012 for her sophomore year of college. And she was actually going to be majoring in marine biology and was planning to use this degree to become a marine biologist. And like I said, she was really into that kind of stuff. And they had such a good marine biology program there at the University of New Hampshire that she was just super excited. She was truly living her dream and she was just pumped to be doing what she was always meant to do, basically. During this time, she lived in Chester, New Hampshire, with her aunt and uncle, Becky and Tony Hanna. She was doing this just to save some money on housing, which definitely makes sense. And her aunt and uncle talk about how during this time, they had such a blast with her living there. They loved having her there. And she would actually come home and scream like, I'm home. And they just truly thought that she felt like she was really at home and just fit really well into their family. The whole thing was just really good. And also during this time, she got a job working at a Target in Greenland, New Hampshire, which is 55 minutes away from Amherst, New Hampshire, which is where the University of New Hampshire is actually at. And then it is 34 minutes away from Chester, New Hampshire, which is where her aunt, uncle, and her were residing at the time. So now we're going to get into the real case details. So on October 9th, 2012, Lizzie left her aunt and uncle's home and headed to school just like any other day. She left a note for them and she stated that she would be out of class around 9 p.m. that evening and then she would be going to hang out with some friends, but that she would be home by 12 or 12.30 at the latest. And when she attended this evening class, it was actually the last time that she was ever seen. So on this fateful day, there was actually some text messages that were recovered who kind of explained who she would be hanging out with that evening. 
and it was Kat McDonough, the friend that she had met at Target. And she had reached out to Lizzie around two in the afternoon of October 9th and kind of asked her to come over and hang out. And they had really just planned on watching a movie. And at 8.21 p.m., they kind of have like just back and forth all day talking about how it's going to be a good plan, whatever, that they're going to do it. And then finally at 8.21 p.m., Lizzie text Kat just to let her know that she had just gotten out of class and that she was heading to the apartment. So now we're going to fast forward to Wednesday, October 10th, 2012. Lizzie still had not returned home from hanging out with Kat McDonough. Her aunt and uncle try not to really worry about it and chalk it up to her getting tired and that she probably had just stayed the night at the friend's house that she was staying at or hanging out at. But... By Thursday, October 11, 2012, Lizzie still had not returned home. And at this point, Tony and Becky, her aunt and uncle, they really started having this feeling that something just was not right and something was incredibly wrong. They described it as sheer panic. So Bob Marriott, Lizzie's father, actually calls Becky and Tony and asks if they had heard from Lizzie that day. This is when Tony tells him, you know, no, we were actually just about to call you because we haven't heard from her either. Lizzie's parents, Bob and Melissa Marriott, just immediately report Lizzie missing. And remember, they're in Westboro, Massachusetts, and they were starting to head towards Chester, New Hampshire, which is where the aunt and uncle were living. And this is about an hour and a half drive. And this whole entire time, you know, Melissa is like on the phone trying to just make calls to whoever she can just to try and get something figured out about her daughter while Bob is like driving the hour and a half drive. And at this point, everyone was aware that she had planned on meeting up with some friends that evening, but none of them had any idea who these friends were. And investigators actually had an early break when friends told them who she was planning to go see that evening. She was planning to hang out with Kat McDonough, like we had previously mentioned friend from Target. Nate McNeil, who was also the friend from Target, he knew that Lizzie uh, had, you know, met Kat at Target. They had become friends. And he stated that he knew that she had plans to go hang out with Kat that evening. And him and Lizzie were actually supposed to meet up for lunch the following day. But she never replied to his texts, like, just from him double-checking if they were still even going out to lunch the next day. Uh, so he decided to text Kat McDonough and ask her, you know, like, if Lizzie had ever gone over to her apartment that night because no one had been able to find her and it was really just starting to worry everyone that she was missing. She basically states, you know, that Lizzie had never made it to the apartment and that she had already told police that, but that she was really worried too. And Nate had actually known Kat for some time. She was his sister's kindergarten best friend. And he, when asked about Lizzie, you know, states that she was just a super happy person. She always found the best in everyone. And she had such an aura about her. People just wanted to talk to her. So after this investigation began, basically, because they knew kind of who they were looking for, they started to look into Kat McDonough and they kind of came up with some stuff about her. She was 19 at the time, and she had been living with her boyfriend, Seth Mazalia, who was 30 at the time, which I find a little weird, 
Obviously no shame to anybody, but he just seems a little old for somebody who is freshly 19, you know? The two of them had met in the summer of 2011 when they were both at a theater kind of tryout kind of thing audition. And Richard DeMario, who was actually running the theater at the time, stated that Kat was a very sweet girl. She seemed really interested in partaking in the production of things and she was super reliable and helpful. But in the fall of 2011, he offered her a part in the play that he was directing and he stated, you know, that Kat had completely changed once she began dating Seth, even going as far as isolating herself and cutting herself off from her entire family and all of her friends once she moved in with him. Seth Mazalia worked at a local electronics store at the time, and he also taught martial arts, and he was also a certified EMT, so kind of just all over the place with his hobbies and whatever jobs. Seth Mazalia um, just wasn't that good of a person. Investigators quickly found out that he had a pretty dark side to his life, which not going to kink shame anybody, but while they were re researching him, they found that his name kept popping up on sexual bondage sites. And it seemed as though it was just a really big part of his life. And that's what's concerning to me. Not that he just is into that kind of stuff, but that it literally is like overtaking his life, basically. So they actually kind of found this same behavior in Kat. She would post dark photos of herself using screen names like Vampire and Actress and also Miss Scarlet. Kat had seemed to develop this fetish of sorts that had a lot to do with bondage, ropes, submissiveness, and the two of them even posted an ad on fetish websites talking about how they wanted to bring a third person into their relationship. And now I'm going to read that to you. I'm going to preface this by saying that it is kind of weird um, and very detailed, but I feel like it's just a very prominent part of the story, so I need to just read it to you guys. So the title of this is Dom Switch Couple Looking for C Female Slave Slash Sub in Dover, New Hampshire. My lord and I are looking to acquire a live-in slave for sexual pleasure and housework. He is the dom of the house and the master. He is also 30 years old. I am a nymphomaniac switch and I switch from slave to sub to, to dom. So you may never know what mood I'm in. This is how our household works. We also have a cat. I don't know why they had to add the cat part. Could have left the cat out of it, but I digress. Our slave would be expected to keep the apartment in order, do the dishes, laundry, and some of the cooking also to be available for some form of sex at potentially any given time. We wouldn't expect you to have a job outside of the house. What happens in your free time will be approved by the master. Seems a little controlling if you ask me. We would plan to meet up with any potentials in person if interested to discuss the household further and see if you have any specific requests. Then we would invite you in for about a month for a trial period to see how it works. And if by the end of the month we decide to part ways, so be it. If on the other hand you are to stay, we can adjust what needs adjusting and go on with the agreement. This can be for a little while or long term. Be aware that we choose our long term companions very carefully. 
Unlike many men and women who are willing to dive right into things on all levels, even though we are physically intimate right away, we will take our time to circle you mentally and emotionally. We want to know who you are, what you are, and how you respond under different pressures. We want to know your interests and hopes and goals in life, and we will want to know you and be sure you are beyond a doubt in our minds. If you are interested at all, please contact us as we would love to chat and discuss the possibilities. So as you can tell, they're into some very interesting things and are looking for some very interesting things. And Lizzie was actually never found on or interacting with any of these sites. Now we're going to move on to Friday, October 12th, 2012. Police bring Kat and Seth in for questioning. They do these interviews at the same time, but in completely separate rooms. Initially, Kat stuck with the same story that Lizzie never came over that evening, and after about two hours of being interviewed, she just completely refuses to answer any more questions, and at this time, she was let go. But she did stay just to wait on Seth. Seth, however, he told a very different story, and he actually ended up being questioned for a total of about 11 hours. He stated that Lizzie did come over, they had sex, and something went wrong, and she died. They then ask, what about Kat's involvement in this? And where would Lizzie's body may be at this time, since you just admitted to basically watching her die? He stated that after Lizzie died, he panicked and he took her body to Pierce Island. And Pierce Island is a 27-acre island owned by the city of Portsmouth, New Hampshire. And it's where the Piscataqua River meets the Atlantic Ocean. Obviously, seeing as he is stating that he threw her body in the, basically, ocean, this area has been known for a very strong current and high tides the search efforts just begin immediately but it unfortunately yielded no results so on saturday october 13th 2012 seth mazalia was arrested and he was charged with the murder of lizzie marriott and then 48 hours after this he was arraigned but cat actually was not during this time which I find kind of interesting because she was one of the last people to know where Lizzie was at and literally was with Lizzie. But I guess because she didn't really divulge in her interview anything at all, except for that Lizzie just wasn't there, they didn't really have anything to go off of. And also they didn't have a body. So after all of this happened, Lizzie's parents were informed about what the police had just learned. And Bob Marriott, who is Lizzie's father, states that he was just completely numb after learning that. He just didn't know how to feel. He was just numb. Police then kind of went on some more investigating things. They found some evidence in the dumpster that was actually behind the apartment complex that Kat McDonough and Seth Mazalia were living in at the time. And in this dumpster, they found quite a bit of evidence. They found black gloves that were almost like a leathery material, men's underwear, and Lizzie's sweatshirt. 
so this is already just not really creating or painting a very pretty picture and after this law enforcement continued tirelessly to look for her body in the piscataqua river for weeks but they were just never able to find her body this is obviously just extremely heartbreaking for the family. Their daughter deserves justice and to be brought home for a proper burial. And her mother, Melissa Marriott, said she's just out there someplace. They just threw her away in the ocean. Just very upsetting and sad and almost just eerie because she was such a fan of the ocean. So now I'm going to give you a little bit more information about Seth Mazalia and kind of his past because in my eyes, his past is almost exactly parallel to his present when the story was unfolding. So there was one person specifically from his past who was not surprised at all when Seth was arrested for the murder of Lizzie. Her name was Catherine which this is also kind of weird because she is an ex of Seth's and her name is Catherine and he's dating a Catherine right now. It's just kind of weird. I don't know, just weird. Spelling is different, but it's weird. Um, and she actually dated him when she was in high school and he was going to college in upstate New York. Catherine states that it was inevitable that Seth Mazzaglio was going to kill and Lizzie Marriott was just the perfect victim for him. When she was asked, do you think that this was maybe a sexual encounter that went awry and got too rough, or was this murder? Catherine states, no, murder, this was murder. I wish she hadn't been there, but if it wasn't Lizzie Marriott, it would have been somebody else. He fantasized a lot about murder when I was with him, which that just is upsetting. I would not want to be with somebody who fantasizes about murder, but you'll see kind of why she is basically forced to stay with him. She states that she knows Seth's dark side, and she basically explains it as initially he was, you know, the flower type, and he was very caring. And then when asked, like, you know, when did that change, she replies with, he was always into the BDSM type thing, which if you don't know what BDSM stands for, it is bondage, dominance, and sadomasochism. And bondage obviously involves tying people up, constricting them, all sorts of things. You know what dominance is, and sadomasochism is basically finding sexual pleasure or gratitude when humiliating, harming somebody else or yourself during a sexual encounter. So just not good, very violent. But like I said, I'm not gonna kink shame anybody. It's just his motives were just very not good. She states that they were naked and fooling around. He put his entire hand just fully around her throat. She told him to stop and he just started doing it harder. And she says that this basically just completely freaked her out. And she also states that during this time, he took complete control of her life. And he made it to the point where she couldn't even leave without fear of him killing her, which just upsets me. Domestic violence is obviously a very big deal. And it seems as though he would specifically isolate 
his spouses to make them feel like they had nowhere else to go, which is just so upsetting and just so wrong. And uh, it just is not good. So in 2002, actually, her and Seth moved to New Hampshire. And during this time, Catherine states that Seth continuously tried to get another woman into the bedroom with, with them. It was something that was constant and there was always a need to have more than just her in the relationship, which, like I said, parallel basically to what he was going through when this case was unraveling. He was isolating Kat. He was basically making her, you know, post things online on these sexual websites to kind of get a third person in the bedroom with them. And they wanted to basically have a third person there to be a sex slave like just not good things and she was actually isolated you know 600 miles away from all of her family at this time and so she basically felt that she had no choice but to just stay in the relationship and you know try to make him happy but eventually she did get herself moved out but she actually just like stayed in hiding for a long time because she was just so scared of him just not good ah but I digress. So now we have a better understanding of Seth and who he kind of was. And it's just, uh, it's very prominent to what happens in this case. And it just really upsets me. Like I said, it's just a very upsetting case. So two days after the arrest of Seth Mazalia, Kat McDonough actually meets with his lawyers to try and clear his name. For some reason, she was still kind of supporting him, which I find kind of suspicious and like like why he's basically admitting to killing somebody hiding their body or getting rid of their body and you're still just like yeah let me go clear his name because that makes sense but like i said i feel like she was almost in parallel with his ex didn't really feel like she had any other person in her life i mean we know that she isolated herself from all of her family at least So during this time, while she was talking to the lawyers, she tells her story number two, and she actually changes her original statement. She now says that Lizzie did in fact come over that evening, and that after, or and that her death was an accident. Kat states that Seth was sitting, and the two of us were kind of just goofing around. The night allegedly started with them watching a movie, then they went on to play cards which then somehow led to a consensual group sex moment. Kat states that it started going from silly to sexual and started to get a little more intense. She also goes on to say that Lizzie agreed to being tied up with a harness. And she actually talks about in this interview how she had only ever tied a harness on herself, not someone else. And then she kind of draws a diagram of how these harnesses were placed on Lizzie's body. And she says that because of these harnesses that were tied on Lizzie's body, she had a seizure and then eventually suffocated and died. And she states that she was actually laying underneath Lizzie when all of this was going on and Lizzie basically died on top of her. So that's her story number two. Pretty very much very different from her story number one. I don't know if we can trust her. I I just don't know if we can trust her, you know? Like, she's already changed it so drastically. But no one who knew Lizzie actually believed that any of this was plausible 
because she was in a very committed relationship that was long distance and she was dating a woman named Brittany Atwood and they by all accounts were in a very good relationship with one another they loved each other very much I actually watched the victim impact statement of Brittany Atwood and it was just very heartbreaking to hear how much she genuinely cared for Lizzie and it seemed like they were just in a very good place not something that Lizzie would want to mess up with two completely new people in her life that she doesn't really know at all so two months after this Kat McDonough is charged with three accounts of hindering an investigation and along with this, she is actually ordered to seize all further contact with Seth Mazalia. During this time, she was offered a plea deal. The prosecutors in the case basically just needed her testimony to basically just charge Seth Mazalia in the murder of Lizzie Marriott. And they actually offered her a pretty insane deal. She, uh, basically told she could have maximum of three years instead of the possible 21 which is just a crazy difference in time it's insane and so obviously that's a really good deal so she took it and she testified against Seth so now we're gonna fast forward to May of 2014 this is two years after Lizzie Marriott's murder and this is the beginning of Seth Mazalia's trial so the prosecution included the lead prosecutor, Peter Henkley, and he basically begins this trial by explaining the details of the case and who Seth Mazalia's victim was in this case, which is Lizzie Marriott, as we know. So he kind of explains who she was as a person, what he basically did, and he says after his rape and murder, the defendant conspired with Catherine McDonough to falsely evidence of his crimes now it is time for Kat McDonough to testify and she goes on to tell her third version of this story which like I said I just don't know if you can trust her but I'm gonna tell you what she says basically so she starts with saying this is just the beginning of where I've been able to open up and actually explain what really happened to her. She goes on to state that Lizzie didn't actually accidentally die in a sexual act that went wrong. It was intentional. So during her time on the, on the stand, she also speaks about how truly dark and scary her life with Seth was, speaking about some of their sexual activities and just other things. And how it was just honestly a very isolating world for her. Like we talked about multiple times before, she did isolate herself from her entire family. And as you can imagine, that must be kind of scary. Just always depending on one person. Just very dark and isolating. And during this time, prosecutors actually read a text message that Seth had sent Kat six weeks before Lizzie Marriott's murder occurred. He talks about punishing her in, a, in very explicit ways and even starting the text message with, it's time I punished you, you filthy little trigger warning whore. He goes on to tell her that she needs to find and supply another female, one of her friends, and basically says that he will do whatever he wants to her friend while Kat watches. Just honestly some absolutely fucked up shit 
And once again, I am going to read you this text message. Just prefacing it by it is very violent, very controlling, just very upsetting to begin with. So he states, the second price is this. You choose a friend, any of yours will do, and you offer her to me that I may do anything I wish to her while you watch and assist in any way I might command you to do so. Ideally, this friend watches your punishment and helps, but I'll settle for someone who I interact with directly while you watch. I think it would be fitting in the first, if the first thing that you saw me do when you got back is pleasure one of your friends until they died of redacted, I don't know what it says, and only then turned my brutal attention to you. So, just to unpack that a little bit, he's basically just telling her like to find a friend so he can physically abuse them, sexually abuse them, anything he wants, he states. And I could imagine that text was just pretty kind of scary. He's saying that it's a punishment, which is just so scary. I just would be so terrified if somebody told me that. So, yeah, I apologize. It was very brutal, but it needed to be read. So now we're just going to go further into the trial. So the text that Lizzie had sent on October 9th, 2012, the night that she was brutally murdered and raped, show that she arrived at Kat and Seth's apartment at 8.51 p.m. So remember, she texted Kat at 8.21 p.m. saying she was out of class. And so by 8.51, she was at their apartment. Kat says that they all basically start discussing what they wanted to do for that evening. They watch a movie and Kat brings up the idea of strip poker. So they play that and Kat basically says, you know, I ended up completely naked and Lizzie ended up only wearing her underwear. Which at this point is when Seth Mazzalia started making sexual advances and tried to get the two women to kiss. Lizzie stated that she was not going to be doing that because of her committed relationship with Brittany Atwood. She just wasn't about that, told him no, said it was not what she wanted to do. He then asked if he could have sex with Kat while Lizzie stayed in the same room, to which Lizzie said no again, because literally, what the fuck is that shit? She just told you, I don't even want to kiss somebody else. Why would she want you to have sex in front of her? Like, just take no for an answer. So then Kat states that because he was told no twice, he got really angry. And I think this is because he's not man enough to to take no for an answer. Like, you're just going to get angry because somebody doesn't want to have sex with you. Stop being a child. But I digress. So then she talks about how he was sitting on the futon behind them. So in their apartment, they basically, it wasn't a very big apartment. It seemed as though the futon slash bed was just in the living room, like one of those one bedroom kind of situations. And he was sitting on the futon while Lizzie and Kat were sitting on the floor in front of him watching a movie facing the other direction. So they had their backs to him. He gets up quietly, puts on a pair of black leathery gloves, and grabbed a rope. This is when he got behind them again, 
and he reaches forward, puts the rope around Lizzie's neck, and starts strangling her. She also confirms, Kat, while in court, that the gloves that were being displayed in court as a piece of evidence were, in fact, the ones that he wore during this attack. She then states that Seth, trigger warning, raped Lizzie after she had already passed away. Which, that just absolutely breaks my heart. So upsetting. Just so upsetting. And Kat also admits that she did nothing to help Lizzie. Uh, She didn't stop the attack, didn't call for help, didn't do anything. She said, actually, that she had gotten up from where they were sitting on the ground and walked over to the window and was just looking out of the window while all of this was happening. Which... I feel like I could kind of understand if her situation is as dark as it's being portrayed to be. Maybe she was just genuinely scared that the same thing would happen to her. But at the same time, this is your friend and you're just going to let her be killed by your boyfriend. It's just not okay. Not cool. So then... Kat makes a phone call to a friend named Roberta Gerken around 1049 that evening asking for her assistance. So Gerken and her boyfriend, Paul Hickok, arrive at the apartment of Seth and Katz a little after 11 p.m. that evening. Gerken states that as soon as she walked into the apartment, she sees a body on the floor right next to the bed. And when she asks about, like, what's going on, she basically just... Ex- is explained that really I just don't even know it was just a very vague explanation of what happened so she really just felt like she had no clue what was going on and she didn't really want to be there because it seemed very sketchy so her and her boyfriend actually leave and they actually state you know that when they first got there Seth was sitting on the bed rocking back and forth, saying, like, I went too far this time, I went too far this time, I went too far this time. And he was sitting on the bed where Lizzie's head was at, so on that end of the bed, just basically, like, rocking back and forth on the bed above her. And Kat was in a fetal position in the kitchen, just absolutely freaking out. Her boyfriend and her, like I said, did not want to get involved, so they left the apartment. But the thing that really angers me about these friends is I get not wanting to be involved, but you still should have called 911 and they did not call 911. But they supposedly urged Seth to call an ambulance. But at this point, you can tell that somebody is dead. You can tell that he's saying, I went too far this time. So maybe it's a little suspicious and you should reach out to the police doesn't matter if they're your friends and maybe you should not trust that he is going to call an ambulance because he does not at all. In fact, he does something horrendous. So, but I digress once again, it just pisses me off. I'm going to kind of give just a trigger warning in general for this because it is very upsetting. I did not like really researching this part of the case at all. So I just wanted to let you know this part is very heavy. This is after Lizzie's death, around 1 a.m. 
So Seth and Kat wrap her body up in a tarp and put her inside of a suitcase. They take this suitcase downstairs, find her car that is parked at the apartment, and they drive on back roads and avoid toll roads and highways and stuff like that to not be seen just to be inconspicuous. And they arrive at Pierce Island. They walk up a path that has an overlook above the river. They take her body out of the suitcase and Seth then pushes her body over the cliff. This is very upsetting, just a warning. So Kat states that her body tumbled down the cliff about 35 feet, but it was low tide. So she landed on rocks instead of actually landing in the water. And Seth basically tells Kat, you know, like, I'm too tired to go down there, so you can go down there and push her into the water. So she climbs down this 35-foot cliff, whatever, and he tells her once she gets down there to put seaweed on her body before she pushes her in. And so she covers her body in seaweed and pushes her into the body of water. They then go about throwing away all of the evidence. So this would be most of Lizzie's clothing, the suitcase, the gloves, and the rope that were involved in her murder. They then drove her car to the University of New Hampshire, parked it in a parking lot, got out, and walked six miles back to their apartment. So just very upsetting. Just so upsetting. Just very brutal and just such a disregard for human life. Just so sad. So sad. So now we're going to kind of go into more of the trial. So the defense, Jakeem Barth basically turned the tables on Kat and argued that she, in fact, killed Lizzie in a sex game gone wrong. He states that Seth had nothing to do with the rape and murder of Lizzie Marriott. And then prosecutions present this letter to the court which kind of paints Kat as a victim in their relationship. And they state that she is a victim of abuse and violence. And this is masked by the idea of kinky sex, which I could agree with. You can't just say that they're into BDSM when he is like definitely just emotionally, physically abusive to her on a regular basis. Like there is a point where it stops just being a kink and starts becoming literal abuse. Uh, She goes on to explain how Seth truly did rule her world. And just like the ad says, basically she was a sex slave in their relationship. So kind of like I stated previously, Kat McDonough was extremely isolated during this time. She was cut off from her family, had nobody. He made her dependent on him, which... That's definitely abusive, in my opinion. The prosecution also brings out an expert on abusive relationships, and his name is Scott Hampton. He describes how one could be scared of someone and equally still love them and need them at the same time. He also sheds light on how and why abusers gradually take control over their victims' lives. And it also kind of comes out that the gloves in this case prove to be a key piece of evidence because it proves that he premeditated this crime. Like, why would you put them on if you weren't planning on doing anything, basically? 
and like you you thought to do it before you knew what you were about to do so he was proven to premeditate this crime and the underwear that was found in the dumpster were tested for dna and unfortunately it proved to be a match for both mazalia's dna and lizzie's dna which this could prove that the rape that cat spoke about could be true unfortunately Seth Mazzaglia actually never testified during his trial, so his side of things were never really heard. At the end of his five-week trial, Lizzie's mother, Melissa, states that we were shell-shocked during the trial. Lizzie died twice a day, every day. It was awful, which I could understand. Hearing that story about your own child would just be absolutely gut-wrenching and horrible. It was horrible to even write, like research that, but I just couldn't imagine that being my own kid. So by noon of the second day of deliberation, a verdict had been decided. Seth Mazzaglia was found guilty of first-degree murder by strangulation, first-degree rape and murder, and two counts of conspiracy. Lizzie's family even have sympathy for Kat McDonough and believe that if it was just her, that things would have played out completely different and Lizzie would still be alive today, which honestly, as hard as it is to kind of trust Kat McDonough, I do believe that to be true just because of the type of relationship she was in, which could be proven by text messages and all sorts of things. So I do think that things would have also played out differently if Seth was not a part of this movie going experience you know like if it was just lizzie and cat maybe they would have actually just watched a movie and lizzie could have gone home safely to her family so seven weeks after this trial seth actually returned to court for his sentencing and this is actually when lizzie's parents got the opportunity to speak their minds and really like tell him how they felt about the things that he did to their daughter and just taking their daughter from them in general. Melissa Marriott, Lizzie's mother, basically states, I wake up in the morning and she's gone. I go to bed at night and she's still gone. And all because of a cowardly 30-year-old man could not deal with a confident young woman. And her father actually walks around the courtroom holding up a big like poster photo of Lizzie and this was actually a picture of her holding a frog that she was saving at the time which really speaks true to like who she was as a person so he was just making sure that every single person in that courtroom got to see just how lovely of a person his daughter was and how happy she was to be simply saving a frog's life which is just so heartbreaking so then Seth Mazzaglia has the audacity to finally stand up and say something. Throughout this entire trial, he has kept quiet. It's only been his lawyers doing all the talking, and now that he's being actually sentenced, he's deciding to finally speak up and say something. And he basically states that he did not rape and kill Lizzie, but he played a part in covering up her death. And he says for that, he is truly sorry. 
which to me is a load of bullshit. DNA is very, very accurate. So the fact that his DNA was found with Lizzie's DNA on that pair of underwear that were deemed evidence and thrown away for a reason, there was intent there and you can clearly see it. Seth is then sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole and Kat was actually released from prison in July of 2016. So she only served three years, like I said before, because of her testimony. There isn't really any conclusions to this case because Lizzie Marriott's body has still yet to be found to this day. She has still not been able to lay to rest how she should be, um, which is just so heart-wrenching and upsetting. She did not deserve to be treated like this. She was just such a wonderful person and she is very missed by everybody in her life. And Lizzie's mother hasn't even been able to go to the beach since the death of her daughter. She says that anytime that she even sees it, it's just too overwhelming. And that just breaks my heart because like we talked about previously, that seemed to be a really big part of their family. And it seemed to be something that Lizzie truly enjoyed doing. And her mom even talks about how they were best friends. And so to just not be able to do the thing that your best friend loved anymore because she's gone is just very sad. Um, and her parents actually created a memorial for her. It was just a bench in the sun next to the lake in the Massachusetts wood, woods um, so she can just live out her best life, I guess, you know. It's just very sad. Very pretty view, I guess. Her family has also set up a scholarship in her memory, which is called the Lizzie Marriott Intrepid Ocean Explorer Fund, which is really cool how they're able to continue spreading just her love and passion for marine biology through other students who are also pursuing that dream. It's just very heartwarming and just also just so heart-wrenching. But like I said, Lizzie's body has never been recovered, and that is the case of Lizzie Marriott. And I'm so sorry it was so heavy. I just felt like her story needed to be shared. It's a very crazy case. I had never heard of it before, so I hope that I also shed some light on maybe some domestic violence situations. And if you ever find yourself in a situation where you feel stuck like that, where you can't leave or you're isolated, just know that there are resources for you. And like I said, if you find yourself in this situation, I'm just gonna give you some resources that you can reach out to. So the number for the National D Domestic Violence Hotline is 800-799-7233, or you can text START to 88788. They also have a website where you can chat with them so please use that to your advantage if you ever find yourself in one of these situations. It would break my heart to know that anybody could and is being put through this right now. So please stand up for yourself. Please reach out. It's just, I don't need this to happen again. It's so sad and just so upsetting. But that is her case. And yeah, it's the end of the episode, basically. I don't really think I have anything else to say. Let me know 
how you guys feel about two episodes a week. I was thinking about maybe doing that, maybe spreading it out a little bit, doing maybe Wednesdays and Sundays, giving you a little bit more content, but I don't know like if it's worth that. So if you do want to hear two cases a week, please let me know. I actually created an email as well. It's just a not so grateful dad pod at gmail.com. So reach out to me there. Give me cases that you want to hear. And if you want to hear more than one case a week, you can let me know there or any of the social medias that I have. My Instagram is the not so grateful dad underscore podcast, TikTok, the not so grateful dad pod, and Facebook is the not so grateful dad podcast with Grayson Decker. And I think that's about it. If you liked this episode, give me a review. Give me some stars. Tell me how you feel about it. Let me know how I'm doing. And I think that's about it. It was lovely getting to talk to you guys. Once again, I apologize for the upsetting nature of this case. Go listen to something positive after this. Cheer yourself up because it is sad. Um, I hope you all have a great week. Thanks for joining me. I love you guys. Goodbye.